As we saw last Sunday, the Lord spoke again to Job after a less than enthusiastic response on Job's part to the first speech. As I mentioned last week, uh, it may be that I'm too harsh on Job, that in fact he learned what he was supposed to learn from the first speech, that he is small before the bigness of God, that his knowledge is limited in time and scope. But as I mentioned, the Lord begins his second speech as he does the first. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And on the face of it, these are harsh words, uh, perhaps not to a healthy person who has strength, but Job has been through so much. It seems rather cruel on the part of God to ask him to sort of stand up and, and take, take it like a man. 
But Job still has not come to see what God wants him to see. In this second speech, as we saw last week, there are two underlying themes, the justice of God and the power of God. And I think it's important that these things come up because throughout Job's complaints against God, these two things have been there all along. He has raised questions about God's moral rule over the world, that is, his justice. What kind of a God of justice would allow an innocent man to suffer? And implied in that is maybe the reason that he has not done anything is because he does not have the power to do what needs to be done. The first speech dealt with God's wisdom and power and the order of creation. In his creation, in his control, in his care, there is an order to it all. And there's a mystery, but there's still an orderliness to it all. But the second speech shows us that not everything in creation is orderly. In the second speech, God deals with the exceptions, the things that we would not include in a creation of our own. The things that, in our opinion, do not belong in God's creation. The wicked, the useless, and the hostile. As we saw last week, indirectly, Job is asked three questions uh, under one heading. Job, if you were in charge of the universe, what would you do about these exceptions? Would you crush the wicked? Would you create the useless? And here he talks about the behemoth. Would you control the hostile? Specifically the Leviathan. And in each case, power is the issue and justice is the principle with which Job must deal. For us, these are difficult issues. Because when we get power, it seems that we become corrupted by it and then we begin to make decisions that are not just for God, power and justice are not at odds. They come together and they do what is best for all of God's creation. Let's get back to the three questions, though. If Job were to answer, and I think we would along with him, yes to each question. Yes, we would crush the wicked. Yes, uh, we would or no, we would not create the useless. We would get rid of the useless. And no, we would not control the hostile. We would get rid of the hostile. If we would answer in this way, the result would be a world without grace. And I think Job comes to see this at the end of it all. This is review, but I mentioned last week that for me to understand this second speech, two questions were critical. I had to answer these questions before I could understand what was being said. First of all, what does God mean when he speaks of the behemoth and the Leviathan? And secondly, why does Job react the way he does in our passage today here in Job chapter 42? Let me just review a bit about the two creatures and then move on. The behemoth I take to refer to the hippopotamus. And in mentioning the hippo, a creature which serves no purpose, has no unique function, has no special quality to set it apart from the animal kingdom, God points to those aspects of creation which to us appear to be ugly and useless. God does not see them that way. We do. Because God, as he speaks about the behemoth uh, in chapter 40, verse 15, 
says that which I made along with you on the sixth day of creation. When God made man, he also made the behemoth. He also made the hippopotamus. And in verse number 19, he ranks first among the works of God. The hippopotamus, which is not an attractive creature, which really serves no purpose that we can discern. God ranks as being among the first of his works. And why talk about a hippopotamus? What could this possibly have to do with Job's situation? Well, the hippo, in my opinion, represents the ugly things that have happened to Job. Or anyone else for that matter. Things which have no rhyme or reason. Things with which we would have nothing to do if we were in charge. In part because we are utilitarian in our way of things. It has to serve a specific function. It has to have a purpose. If it doesn't, then we don't want anything to do with it. And God tells Job, and Job gets it, and hopefully we do too, I created the ugly, useless hippopotamus. I did that. I'm in control. And Job, I'm the one who allowed these things to happen to you. And to you, they may seem ugly and useless, but I caused them to happen. The second creature is the Leviathan, which I take to refer to some type of monster that is found on both land and sea. Uh, a creature that is almost mythic, I think, in proportions. It's mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it's always in the context of being opposed to God. In the Leviathan, we find God graciously tolerating that which opposes him. We see that God does not respond immediately to hostility or evil or those things which oppose him. Because God sees the big picture. We see what we can see. God sees it all. And he will not act in the short term that will create a problem in the long term. And if you look at the end of chapter 41, uh, I think a subtle shift occurs in which now the Leviathan is described in terms of the accuser, the Satan. Satan, the one who has caused, in a sense, this whole mess, who began it by confronting God about Job. If you look at verse number 34, uh, 33 and 34, nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. And here we find Satan, one who is without fear. He fears no one on earth and he presides over the pride in human hearts. And without mentioning the confrontations in chapter one, God tells Job something profoundly important. God is in control. The fact that God has tolerated this in the short term does not mean that God is impotent, that he hasn't been able to do something about it. Rather, it is a sign of his power. It is a sense of his justice. And now Job responds. And as I said, this is the key, because otherwise we're just, it's just like another animal story. You know, we had that in the first speech about 
lions and ravens and wild goats and deer and donkeys. And, and now we go to hippos and leviathans. But Job's response, his reaction, I think, should open up the passage for us so that we are able to see what Job sees. Look, if you would, we'll read verses 1 through 6 here in Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard, had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. From his reaction, we find for Job, the question is no longer why. Why have these things happened to me? The question is now who? And the who question has two parts. Who am I? And here we find a confession of who he is. And secondly, who is God? Before we move on any further with this, I scribbled some notes here because it, it dawned on me after I was finished that this, uh, this particular passage deals with someone who believes in God, someone who has had a revelation of God. And that's really important because if we deal with the question, who am I, without the context of God's revelation, we may come up with some bizarre, some bizarre answer. And so this is not, if you wish, a speech or a response of someone who does not believe in God, someone who has not heard of God, someone who knows nothing about God. This is someone to whom God has revealed himself. Because otherwise, who knows what kind of answer we might come up with. Job, as someone who knows about God and God's requirements, sees himself in God's light as a righteous man. And he believes God to be just. And therefore, if you do right, you will be rewarded. If you do wrong, you will be punished. This is not something that Job made up on his own. This is something that has been revealed to him. But let's answer these two questions today. First of all, who am I? And then, who is God? When God addressed Job out of the storm, he asked, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And now Job responds by repeating that. And he answers the question, who is this particular person who darkens God's counsel? By darkens, that means it calls into question that really taints, he's throwing black paint, if you wish, on God's counsel to say, God doesn't know what he's doing. And Job answers, I am weak, I am unwise, and I, I am unworthy. No plan of God's can be thwarted, not even by Job. Job spoke of things he did not understand. And in verse number six, he says, I am unworthy. He repents in dust and ashes. It is important that Job confess these deficiencies. Let me just take a moment here. To confess means to agree with. 
This is what God has revealed to Job. You are weak, you are unwise, you are unworthy. And now Job is agreeing with what God has said. This isn't something that Job's like. So let me see, let me think, what kind of a person am I? Oh, I'm, I'm terrible, I'm weak, I'm unwise. No, he is agreeing with God's assessment of who he is. Job did not sin, as best we can tell, but he came perilously close to blaspheming against God when he demanded that God come down and speak to him on his terms. The mention of Satan at the end of the second speech, I think, is what turns the corner for Job. Because now he realizes by being so proud, I am innocent, there is no reason these things should have happened to me, that he has come very close to giving in to his pride. And if he does, then the one who is king over all that is proud, Satan, would have been his new master. And therefore, before he says who God is, he must say who he is and he must confess his pride. He's not confessing that what Eliphaz accused him of, of some wickedness, He's not confessing that. He's not confessing hypocrisy that Bildad accused him of. Rather, he is confessing, he is agreeing with what God has said about him, that he is weak. He is wordy, if you wish. He uses way too many words. And he is unworthy. And then he goes to the second question, who is God? And this is important, because if we never get beyond the first question, who am I? As Christians, despair is a real possibility. If Job had stopped with the confession of who he was as a weak person, then this book would not have been unusual in in literature. This would have just been another tragedy. If we limit ourselves to the question, who am I? Whether for ourselves or for the human race, then... I think ultimately we will lose our faith. And Job seems, at least before these two speeches, he seems on the verge of walking away from his faith in God. If this is the God I've been believing in, then I want nothing to do with him. But that's only one question, who am I? You have to answer the second question, who is God? And I think it is only when we answer the second question that the first one really begins to make sense. When Jesus was here, he preached repent and believe. In his confession, Job repents. And now in his affirmation, he believes. And what is it that he believes? You find this in verses two through five. I know that your power can do anything for me. I know that your purpose will be accomplished for me. We find this in verse number two. In verse number three, I know that your will is good for me. I know that your presence is real to me. Verse number five. And in verse number six, though we may not find it there, it is there. I know that your grace is given to me. There are two key words in this this statement of faith, this affirmation on Job's part. The word wonderful and the word see. If you go back through the book of Job, you will find, as Job's friends speak, wonderful words of God's majesty. 
Some of them we could even put into hymn form as they speak so wonderfully of his majestic greatness. But none of them use the word wonderful. What we find in Job's friends are men who fear God. That's not bad. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fear is a response to the justice of God. God is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. Therefore, I need to be afraid of him. Wonder is the response to the grace of God. And one of the things that we saw in Job's friends as we've gone through this book is they knew nothing of the grace of God. There was no grace in his friends. For them, it was black and white. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you're punished. The gray area in between of God's great grace, they had nothing to do with whatsoever. Job has seen the grace of God. And therefore, as he speaks, he speaks of things too wonderful for me to know. He speaks of wonder. Mystery, wonder, and grace, I think, are inseparable. God wants us to marvel at the mysteries of his creation. He wants us to enjoy the wonders of of his creation. But those are subsets of the main point, which is God's grace. Before God speaks to Job, God, or Job knew about God's power in creation. And Job feared God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But now, after God has spoken, Job sees God's grace. And now, it is not simply the beginning of wisdom. Job is seeing wisdom himself. The second word is the word see. And it really, I think, is important for us in this particular context. Elihu, in his second speech, says, For the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. You hear, you taste. Up to this point, for all of the friends and for Job, it's all been about what they've heard. And Job says in verse number five, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. This is a rather strange statement because we are told in the scriptures that no one can see God and live. So how is it that Job can claim to have seen God? Because if he had seen God, then he would be dead. I think what Job is saying is that he has not literally seen God, but that he has had an encounter with God in which he has come to know the person and the presence of God so intimately that he can say, my eyes have now seen you. You see, up to this point, Job's weakness, if you wish, his wordiness has blurred the picture of who God is. His person, his presence, his purpose. But once Job shut up and listened, he began to see through. He began to see who God is in his person, in his presence, and in his purpose. 
Job has seen God, I'm not sure that we have. Because as we go back through these speeches from God, if we're not careful, we don't get it. What are you, what are you talking about hippos for? What are you talking about monsters for? What God is doing is speaking of grace. God is in control of the world and he allows wicked people to live long lives and prosper. God is in control and we have things in our lives that are ugly and useless, at least by our standards, but God allows them. God is in control and there is great hostility against God in the world. Because God is a God of grace. And now Job gets it. Now he sees God for who he is, a God of grace. No longer does Job rely on hearsay or tradition about God. He knows God for himself. No longer does he have to depend upon human reason alone to define the nature of God. He has been in the presence of God himself. No longer does he have to tremble in fear before the power of God because he has seen the grace of God. And no longer does he have to demand an explanation for every mystery. He has put his trust in God. It is the great wonder of this book that God never explains to Job what we know. That Satan went up and said, look at Job. He only worships you. He only fears you because of the good things you give him. God never explains. And you know what? After God speaks, Job never asks. For Job, after God has spoken, there are no why questions. Why, why, why has this happened to me? Because now Job knows who God is. And he has put his trust in him. To the question, who is God? Job has found the answer. He is the God of all grace. And because he knows the answer to the who question, Job no longer feels the need to ask the why question. I think many of us wish that we were in Job's position that we would no longer ask the why question. When we see the suffering of those around us, when we see the ugliness and the uselessness of so many things in our world, it is the great temptation to say, why? If you are the God of all power, why don't you change things? Why don't you fix this mess? Job no longer asks that because he knows who God is, the God of all grace. We live in a time in which, to be frank, God is no longer respected. We live in a time in which people believe themselves to be morally superior to God. In their view, God is intolerant, God is cruel, got a bad temper, capricious sometimes in what he does, not always very logical, very rational. And we see ourselves as being 
rational and logical most of the time. Most of the time we keep our tempers in check. We're basically good people. And let's face it, God does not do very well in our eyes in this generation. As a result, we find ourselves asking more and more and more the why question and not the who question. Because in our minds, we've answered the who question and we don't like the answer. I said earlier that to answer these questions requires a revelation from God. God has spoken in his word. And here it is we find out who we are and who he is. And I think it is in that context that we find faith and we find peace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do not understand many of the things that you do in this world or that you allow to exist. The ugliness, the cruelty, things that just want make us want to rage against you and demand that you explain yourself. How can you allow these things to be? By your Spirit, through your Word, may we have a revelation of who you are and who we are. Not based on our own wisdom, our own thinking, but on your infinite knowledge. May we remember that if we were in charge of this world, we wouldn't be here because we certainly wouldn't tolerate our own existence. It is a God of grace, the God of all grace, who does not immediately crush the wicked, but gives them the opportunity to turn and repent. is the God of all grace who has created those things which, at least to our way of thinking, seem to serve no purpose. It is the God of all grace who allows those things hostile toward him to continue to exist. It is because you are the God of all grace. May your spirit open our eyes and our hearts to see this truth as Job did. Not merely to hear it, but to see you. And to embrace into our hearts this truth. I thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you today. I ask that your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.